I'm very honored to be here today to be able to do this. This is actually kind of the first time I've ever been asked to speak at a conference of any sort. Um, so uh, I hope you guys are in for some kind of treat, but I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't ever know what I'm going to say. I don't really know where it's going to come from. I hope it doesn't come from up here. I hope it comes from somewhere else through me, but we'll see. You'll be the judge of that, I guess. I'll kind of know how you look if you're doing this or you're doing this or your head goes where I can't see anymore when you're trying to go to sleep. So uh, I hope that's not the case. But um, sorry, I am also from Texas. <laughs> the thing about Florida, besides him, not too many people here are from here. Somehow we end up from all over the place, and uh, I have a lot of commonality with some of the speakers that I've heard speak already. Uh, I think we have some of the same mentors and friends and everything else that kind of brought us into this world of recovery. Uh, I'm from a little bitty town in Texas called Marlin, Texas. Uh, it's about 5,000 people, and there you're either Catholic or you're Baptist. And if you ain't either one of those, you're going to hell, so it doesn't matter anyway. But they don't like each other. And I never felt at home either place. Now, I grew up Catholic, and I used to know when we said, peace be with you, there's five minutes left. We were able to get, get, leave and get out of there because I never felt comfortable in church. I seemed to never connect in the way that everybody else did. It never came natural to me. They tell me Jesus died for my sins, and I was like, I don't understand. I don't know what I did. Why do you have to die? I don't quite get it. I never felt that sense of ease and comfort in being in that situation. And uh, as a kid, it really frightened me, and I couldn't understand why these people were good and these people were not. And these people were going to heaven, and, you know, so sorry, but there ain't enough room for everybody. So these people are not. And we're right, and they're wrong. Well, just, you know, I'm glad that we were the right people. But it never sat well with me. Another thing about me is I'm still to this day not convinced that I'm even from Earth. I think I'm some, from other galaxy. And I will cuss a lot, and I'm sorry, but that is just how it goes. It flows through me. Remember, I'm not responsible. <laughs> I may not cuss at all, but if I do, that, that must be something not from me. Because I, naturally, my dad was the best cusser on the history of the, history of the Earth. The way he cusses is, is you want to cuss like that. He says it was such convincing. When he says, son of a bitch... It's so good, you just, I used to do that. That was the first thing I did when I was a kid. My first addiction was to scream into a pillow. I used to cuss into my pillow. It felt so powerful. I felt, I just wanted that power that came from that. And another thing about me, I'm also a meth addict, so there's going to be no linear path to this story. <laughs> I'm going to jump around, and I will never know my place, and at some points I'll go dead blank. And when I finally go dead blank long enough, that's when I'll be done talking. I never know when that's going to be either. But growing up in this small town, never feeling a part of, I always felt alien. And to this day, I'm still not convinced that I'm not from some other place. And, you know, like, I, I'm just here on a visit. I don't really know, but I never felt a part of. When I was a kid, I used to look into the stars, and I used to think, I want to be there. If I could just be there. That's, I don't like it here. I never felt at home here. I grew up in a really crazy situation. A father who just came back from Vietnam. A mom who was still in high school. She got out of high school and had me. But young. Very young. Very ill-equipped to take on a new kid. 
Um, and it was very much uh, wild and crazy in the way that, um, you know, now we understand a little bit more. We know what PTSD is and stuff like that. But my dad, I used to call him zero to table flip in 0.5 seconds. He used to be fine, and then he wasn't fine. And when, my, when you looked in my dad's eyes, you knew to not look at them anymore because you'd see what crazy actually was, and you knew that you were about to get hurt, so you better just look at the ground. So I grew up in this way of being in constant fear and wanting to always be somewhere else. The other thing is we were super poor, and everybody used to make fun of us. And I grew up in a small town where everybody was poor. But really, you know, when you're the poor people in the poor town, it's just kind of, you know, like I used to dive in the floorboard when, it, my, you know, my grandma gave my mom and dad their car. And it was a 1950-something Plymouth Fury. And, it, you know, I think it would eventually become like the Christine car. But this one was not like cool like Christine. This one... <laughs> This one was just old, you know. It wasn't restored. It wasn't anything. It was just from 1955, and this is 1980-something, you know. And uh, I can just remember diving in the floorboard when the cool kids would drive by because I didn't want them to see me. But they, hell, they knew who I was. And, you know, it's not like some big... Uh... And I always, uh, I always envied that. It was like I wanted to be accepted by, the, by them, I wanted them to tell me who I was because I didn't feel enough. Inwardly, I felt better than everybody, but I didn't feel like anybody would ever give me the chance to really show who I was. I felt less than, and I was always on this constant need to prove myself in everything that I did. I had to exceed the goals. I had to be the best. So in school, is that me making that pop, pop noise? Okay. Okay. I didn't really get an answer. I'm acting like I actually interacted with him. I don't know. <laughs> like, I do this all the time. I'm like, what is this I'm hearing? Um, oh, shit. Here goes the blank spots. When I try to be funny, that's what happens. <laughs> so, I'm going to have to switch gears here. Um, this feeling of separateness and this feeling of less than... It didn't go away when childhood went away, and it didn't go away when I got things to go my way, and it didn't go away. It never really went away. Even today, it's still one of those things that it's still there. You know, if I wasn't comparing myself to other people or other things, my probably, I would have a lot less suffering in my life. You know, but there's always something. Today, I'm a lot more free of it than I've ever been. But in reality, like, this is such a, this is such a journey that we're on. Um, I've been sober 13 years now, and I really didn't have a choice in the matter. I was going to go to, you know, go to jail, go to prison, go the whole nine yards. And it, I, had to, I had gone on about five years beyond the point that I, I think at 23 years old, there's a Dave Matthews song where he says, 23 and so tired of life, such a shame to throw it all away. Images grow darker still. Could I have been anything other than me? I can't quote the big book, but I do know the words of that song. And um, I can kind of quote the big book, but I didn't bring one up here, so I hope I don't mess up if I do. Um, this, at 23 years old, I was ready to put a bullet in my head. I got sober at 31 years old. I came into uh, AA in Waco, Texas at 26 years old, and I looked around the room, and I completely 
did not, I, 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 was, I was like, this is the end of the world, this is the end of my life, I will, this, is, this, is the, this is the shittiest group of people I've ever seen in a room. There was like three teeth in the whole room and two of them in the front pocket. This was, I mean, honestly, it was, this dude, was, he shared every time, he shared first every time, and he shared for like 20 minutes, and he used to talk about how he used to be a doctor, and I was like, you were never a doctor. Dude, you were never a doctor. I didn't say this out loud, but in my, in my, you know, in, in my own head, I'm like, dude, these people, God, they drink coffee. Like, I, my grandparents drank coffee. Did any of you drink coffee before this shit? I mean, if you were, I mean, really, it wasn't a part of us. I mean, this is what we do when we don't have real dope. We do coffee, you know. Um, just like I used to do no-dos and all the other shit when I didn't have real dope. Rip fuel. Did y'all ever take those? I would do that just to get by. I'm one of these people that never goes to sleep. When I say never goes to sleep, I'm talking about weeks and months. I'm one of these people that after day three starts to get fun because it starts to get loopy and that things start to get weird and the shit that other people say isn't happening starts happening to me and that's when I start to come to life. When everything gets weird and everybody else is saying I'm out and I'm like, okay, I'll take it. I love that. You know, I can take it or leave it. I'm, we'll leave it. I'll take it. Please. I'm one of those people that if you party with me and you have a bunch of beer in a cooler and we party and you go to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, when you wake up, I will have drank your entire cooler and every other cooler because I'm doing dope the whole time. But see, I, in order for me not to do all my dope, I have to drink at the same time. That's the only thing that slows me down. If you just give me dope, I'll do it in five seconds, and I'll hate it. But the drinking allows me. And that's more when I was on Coke. When I started moving into methamphetamines, it started kind of taking control on its own, and everything else kind of slowed it down. I started in that when I was 26 years old. I don't have a septum, you know, anymore. I remember blowing that out when I was 21. I think I'd only been doing cocaine nine months, and I blew my nose out. And I did say that in a, I'll tell you how DAA got started in St. Augustine. I told my story at an AA event. It's about like this, about 100, about 100 people in there. And I talked about how I lost my septum from doing cocaine in an AA meeting. It's the big speaker meeting in St. Augustine. And after it, a lady came up, and she's like, you know what? When Americans go to Europe and they act like Americans... It's really embarrassing. They don't honor the customs of the place they are, that they're in. And they act real boorish. She's like, that's what you just did up on that stage. And, uh, and I knew she was right in some ways. You know, honoring the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, singleness of purpose, I get it. I get it. Sometimes I feel like we run off more people than we're saving or protecting from it. You know, um, if you're scared of a drug addict, then you ain't been around enough, you know? <laughs> There's a mentor that in, the, in the field of recovery. His name was Mark Easton, and probably some of y'all heard tapes of his and stuff like that. He, uh, I, I worked for him, and that's how I kind of got, you know, I was already sober, but when I met him, I, you know, I, I, got, I reached a whole different level of, like, experience in the, in the work. And he used to tell me, he said, Jason, you know, there's a the difference between alcoholics and drug addicts in treatment. He said, alcoholics, straight alcoholics will tell you everything that's wrong with your program. Everything's wrong with it. He said, addicts want a job. And in my experience, that has been true. 
That has been true. I've seen a lot of, a lot of alcoholics and addicts in my time. Um, I have probably a life that I, you know, I would have traded my life with any single person in this room, straight up. We used to play, play big bank, take little bank. Did y'all ever play that? That means you say, if you say big bank, take little bank, that means you're going to compare how much money you have in each other's wallet. Whoever has more takes the, other, the little man's wallet. Now, uh, you only have to play that once or twice to know that's not a game you want to play when you're a kid, poor as I was, you know. But I would have played big bank, take little bank with any of y'all, and I would have taken your life. I don't care what it would have been. I would have traded with any of you because I hated it. I hated my life. I knew no way that I would ever get out of this hole, ever. If you were as lonely as me, because let's get honest, the things that connects us, it's loneliness. It's emptiness. That's what connects us. Because, I mean, some of y'all did drugs like I did. Some of you did different drugs. But, man, I can still remember I came home to my parents' house after another debacle, and we went to go, me and my dad went to go watch my little brother play baseball at some little town called Normandy in Texas. It's tiny now. And we're driving. It's super dark out in the middle of nowhere on the way home from the game. And he looked at me and he said, boy, what the hell is wrong with you? And I told him, I was just crying. I was looking at the stars like I always am, hoping that I can just be transported away. And I told him, I said, I don't know, Dad, but I'm just lonely. I'm so lonely. And he said, boy, you don't know what loneliness is. I was in fucking Vietnam, you know, and he starts going through this whole thing about, and I, I'm not going to diminish my dad's loneliness because I know. But I know that we know. I know that we know what that is. I know we know what that emptiness is. I know that we know what it feels like to never be part of or to really fit in. Y'all seen that Red, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer show that comes on every Christmas? The Island of Misfit Toys? Yeah. <laughs> right? That's us. You know, he's missing an arm or he can't, you know, he's a jack-in-the-box that can't spring. That's kind of what it's like. That's how I am. It's like something is wrong. Something is missing. I don't quite understand why I'm different, but I'm different. Always felt that way. And I could either, my ego could either make it me superior to you or inferior to you. But equal to you sounds boring. But really, in reality, what I'm seeking is that connection with you that I never really had. Some kind of intimacy, some kind of meaning to life. Uh, hallucinogenics, all that stuff. I used to do hallucinogenics every day because I was, I didn't know it then, but I was seeking God. I was seeking some kind of spiritual connection, seeking some meaning to this. I was disenchanted with life very early. I mean, I don't know. The whole like get a job, get married, do all that sounded like what people do, but I didn't really know if that was the path for me. It sounded kind of cliche and boring. I wanted more. I wanted some kind of depth to my existence. I believe we all do. And I can just remember when I was going to those meetings when I was 26 years old and seeing all those toothless people in that meeting. And I got an extra tooth, so I got no room to talk. I, I got a can opener here. 
That's what we used to call it. The kids used to call it when they make fun of how poor I was, and they make fun of my teeth, too. But when I would look around that room, I don't think there's, uh, there's no way this is going to work for me. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of it. And I'll go ahead and tell you guys, I was, you know, molested at an early age. And I was also had a priest hit on me when I was a senior in high school. So I kind of threw the church away and all that shit together. I was just like, you know, this is a bunch of horse shit. And I, I'm one of those, you try coming at me with Jesus Christ and we're, you know, we're going to, I'm not going to argue with you, but I'm not going to listen to you. You know, I just don't want to hear it. I want to hear, I want you to do what Jesus did rather than talk about Jesus. You know what I mean? Why don't you do what he does? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> that hasn't changed much. That part of it. I love the action part of it. The theory part of it, we're good at that. I'm full of it. I can make you laugh, I can make you cry, I can do all those things, and I can be totally inauthentic in all of it. But really, I'm pretty scared. Each day I don't know how in the hell I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm excited at the same time with all this uncertainty in the world. But man, i got to tell you, for the last... I used to have everything figured out, everything. I really did. Like there was a point in time where the book was alive in my life, sponsoring everybody, feeling all this connection, and then there came a point in time where I opened a treatment center in St. Augustine, Florida, and then I started to alienate myself. I started to feel like people in AA and everything judging me because they're like, oh, shit, you're making money off AA, you know, this and that, and I felt judged in my own hometown, whether it was happening or not, real or fantasy, I used to share in almost every meeting I went to because I think I'm funny and all that stuff and I want you to like me and know who I am. But I went through a phase of about three years without really sharing at all. And I started to kind of back out, feeling that disconnection again like feeling like an alien in these in these rooms it's a very scary place to be now the thought of drinking and drugs never came you know somehow you know I never quit doing the the prayer and meditation the evening review all the things you know those expansive steps I've never stopped doing those I just didn't feel as at home in AA in DAA as I had felt once and good sponsorship and everything else and doing some more work brought me back into it and today it's vibrant again but I did experience this lull and I don't know why it happens I don't know what goes on you know but that feeling of being separate from if it gets really strong it can take anybody out I always look at when I look at everything about how the world works I look at nature you know I think about drug addicts and alcoholics like, if I was going to take you out, I would wait until you were by yourself alone and I would try to beat your ass from behind. I'm not going to attack you right here in front of all these people because they're going to stop me. The way alcoholism works is the same way. It's like, like he said, the lions and the gazelles. They're going to find one off to the side and they're going to attack this one that's off by himself. That's how it works on us, right? 
Not when we're all together, but when we're alone. The mind is dangerous in that form. Do a lot of studying, do a lot of interesting things in this world. Study the conscious mind, the subconscious mind. Because I want to figure out one day why in the hell relapse happens and why in the hell we do it. Because it's not a conscious thing. I don't believe human beings or any living organism destroys itself knowingly. We don't. We don't destroy ourselves knowingly. It happens from somewhere within us. And I, uh, if I look at my life, I don't know why I was constantly trying to destroy myself, but I was. I call addiction suicide on an installment plan. That's what it is. There's a dude in Texas that used to say, you know, at 23 years old, he was ready to kill himself, and he's, he was 30 years sober when he told me this story, and he said, if I would have killed myself at 23 years old, he said, the sad part about it is it wouldn't have been a suicide, it would have been a homicide, because I would have killed a stranger. That's always stuck with me, because we're killing ourselves, and we don't even know who the hell we are, and I damn near did it. I damn near did it. I damn near never got this opportunity to be in front of you. I damn near didn't get this opportunity to be married, to have a child and about to have another child. It could be any moment now. We might have to leave before I'm done. I have no idea. People have been asking Lauren if she's about to have the baby for like three months now, and she's been telling people to GFY, you know, go find yourself. So guys in the room, don't ever ask women, are you ready to pop? Not, nope. Don't say that. <laughs> you know, things like that, just giving you some, some life lessons that you can take from here. If you don't remember anything else I say, remember that one. That'll save you some grief. Um, not that I do it, but she gets it on a daily basis, and she's a trooper, but, you know. But all these blessings. You know, something else I did? I married a lesbian. Not her. Before her. <laughs> Had I not married a lesbian and moved to St. Augustine, Florida, and then got divorced, because she was a lesbian, I didn't know it at the time. This is the, this, when you meet someone at 89 days sober and you get married, hey, you might marry a lesbian. <laughs> or any one of a million different things that you could do. That's what I did, that's how it happened. But had I not had that experience, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have left Texas where I was, moved to St. Augustine, fell in love with it, Got a job offer back in Texas, moved back to Texas after I was divorced, met Lauren, and said, hey, I want to move back to St. Augustine and start this treatment center. And she's like, let's do it. Really cool. Really cool. And now, I never would have thought I could be a father. I was scared of children. Honestly, scared of children. I made kids cry. When they looked at me, they saw me. I don't know about y'all, maybe somebody in this room has actually felt this, but they saw the emptiness in me. Little kids, you can't lie to them. They see me. And I, I went years with thinking I was let, you know, like, if you feel dirty, if you feel less than, kids will scare the hell out of you. I think many of us are terrified of it, like we don't even know. It's that commitment. It's that responsibility. And Lord, don't let me fuck him up like I, fuck, I fucked up. Don't let me repeat what my parents did to me, right? I don't want this. 
the greatest thing on earth is for us to raise a sober to raise a child in a sober home. Man, won't that be an amazing thing? I want to rewrite the entire story of my family today. You know, and I believe we're all capable of these things to rewrite the entire story. I'm a I'm To say that I would not trade my life with anybody, call coming in. <laughs> to say I would not trade my life with anybody today, I don't give a shit whether it's Bradley Cooper or anybody. I wouldn't trade my life with anybody today. Uh, straight up. Because I have the life that I had no idea existed. Um, and it's, like I said, it's confusing as all hell. I have no idea where I am on time. How many, how many minutes do I have left? 10? 10, 15? Um, the, uh, the way I connected to a power greater than myself, well, one, not believing in it. But I'm also a meth-like sorcerer. So I saw a very dark side of life. Uh, those of you who have been to this other... A spiritual vortex that I ended up in I saw a lot of really scary stuff and it was real to me I can still remember one time in Waco like driving down the road and I looked up at the cloud and there was this demon head in the cloud the cloud had formed the head of I don't need uh, you know head demon some demon and it was smiling down on Waco Texas which is a very Baptist place but it was looking down and smiling and there was this dude in the Aryan Brotherhood, of course, driving my, my truck, because this is who I'm hanging out with now, because they have dope and I have nothing. So they're like, go steal this, and I'm like, okay. Well, you're prospecting. I'm like, okay. You know, whatever. Aryan, Aryan Brotherhood used me, basically. Um, they got my checks, my dope, my vehicle, and left me for dead. That's how I got here. <laughs> but that demon looked down, and it was smiling on Waco, Texas. And, I, and it freaked me out. And I, I said, man, do y'all see that? Because am I just going crazy? And the dude driving looked up, and he said, oh, no, man. He runs this shit. <laughs> so I struggle to not know that this stuff wasn't real, Right? This whole God thing, though, I could believe in aliens and everything else, but God, hell no, you know, because I had been so traumatized and hurt by it. I had felt such divisiveness from it. I had never understood why some people are chosen and some people aren't and why I never felt like that. I always felt out of place. And then when that priest did that, I thought, I mean, this is just a... This ain't, you know, like, this is not my path. But see, I threw God out with religion. I didn't know how to separate the two. And when I was in treatment, we did this meditation. And I went to treatment finally. I said I never would. Rehab's for quitters. But I did go because I thought it would look better when the cops came to get me if I was, my ass was in treatment. They're like, oh, well, he took care of, you know. It was manipulation. I didn't go because I thought I was going to get better. I went because I was going to get in trouble. And I wanted to be somewhere they couldn't find me. But I had one of these situations where I went into this meditation. 
and I saw myself as a little child, naked in a, like a round, crazy rubber room, just rocking back and forth. And then all of a sudden, that room got flooded with light. And my grandpa, he had been dead for about a year at this point, two year or two at that point, whom I said I'd get sober if he ever died because he was blind and he'd be able to see me finally in the spirit world that I didn't believe in. But um, I felt his presence and he said, you know, Jason, this is real. God is real and you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Keep doing it. And I woke from that meditation just bawling. And I told myself from that point, just like he said earlier, I believe Christian said earlier, because they were talking about working the steps, and I said I wasn't going to work them. Because I didn't believe in God, so I wasn't going to work them. How the hell am I going to work the steps, you know? Because I know deep down I'm a true, true blue drug addict. This is the only thing that brings me anything. And this God isn't real. So if I say God and I don't believe in it, how in the hell is this going to be powerful enough to overcome my addiction? It won't. I can't pretend that it's powerful when I don't believe that it is. And I came to from that, and I said, you know, I'm going to work these steps, and I'm going to do it 100%, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to put a bullet in my head. But it had been 20 years since I had done anything 100%. Really. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't look on anything that I had done and said, you know, other than dope, and said, I put everything into this. So I started off, and um, I can remember saying my third step prayer and still not believing in it at all. You know, my sponsor had me hold his hand and say the prayer, and we were in front of a hospital in Austin, Texas, and I was looking at everybody was passing by. I felt real embarrassed, but I said the prayer anyway, but I followed it up with action. I started on the strenuous activity of putting down a four-step and the fifth step was the first time I moved from victimhood to ownership in my entire life. I wouldn't have ever thought that I was a victim, but I was damn sure a victim. But when I took ownership, of that I put myself in this position, and with God I can get myself out of this. All the people that I had blamed for all these years, the people that molested me, the college coach that wouldn't let me play, you name it. All these people had fucked me up. When I realized that I had a part to play and that I was the cause of my misery and that because I was the cause of it, that I could also be a solution to it, that I was not the victim of circumstance, that I could take control of my life, kind of, then everything changed. And I will say, making amends is the scariest part of it. It was for me, but it was the most rewarding of every bit of it. And because of that, I mean, I'll be honest with you, when I first started, I was a hot check writer. I couldn't even, I didn't, couldn't even get a bank account. The money box was one of these cash checking places. That's where I used to make my men's checks to. I used to send $20 to this place so they wouldn't put me in jail. $20 to this place. I, I, I checked groceries my first job in recovery. I think in four years I was out of debt. It was about $100,000 in debt. So if you think it's not possible, 
You know, I felt like I was starting a race with one leg tied behind my head. I was like, shit, I ain't ever going to be able to make anything of this life. I'm in such a hole. And some amazing things happened. I can't say that was just me chipping away. But it was a lot of me chipping away. But I believed that it could. And every time I, I wrote one of those money box cashier's checks or whatever and sent it off, I was more free. And then I started to believe. And then things started to change almost exponentially. I started sponsoring people. My first sponsees were black men. Some of them were gay. And I had to address my own racism. And I had to address my own prejudice and my own homophobia right off the bat. I didn't really think I was that way because I was poorer than everybody growing up. The kids used to say, I walked in your front door and fell out the back. <laughs> So I had no idea that I had any racism. I had no idea that I had any homophobia. I thought I was cool with everybody. But I have ideas that have been drilled into me from family, from time, from location, from where I grew up. Just little things. And I started hearing these fist steps of these men, and they started telling me different things. And I started to develop a compassion and an understanding and a depth of experience and intimacy with somebody else that I had never had. And I started realizing... We're good fucking people. We're all good. We're sick. We're hurt. We've been battered and beaten. You know, I hear a lot, you know, I grew up in a perfect situation. I hear that sometimes. I don't believe it. I don't. I believe we all get battered on the way. We all get hurt. We all don't understand. And that colors my personality. It damn sure colored mine. Because I never intentionally hurt anybody. I really didn't. I didn't want to. I, all I wanted you to do was love me. I just wanted you to, I just wanted to be okay with people. But I didn't know how to. The steps transformed my life in that way. It made it where I can be anywhere, anytime, with whoever. And I used to be able to do that to get dope from anybody. But today, it's a whole different situation. I'm as authentically me as I know how to be today. I don't know about y'all, but my dad used to tell me the most fucked up advice. He used to say, son, you just got to be yourself. <laughs> and I used to think, what the hell does that mean? I mean, I really didn't know because I'm a million different people. I always have been. I just, however I had to be in whatever situation, you know, I'm this person at school. I'm this person with my grandma. I'm this person with football coach I'm this person here with my friends I'm never the same today I'm as close to being one person as I've ever been and it's still a process and um, I uh, I'm not as grateful as I should be in fact gratitude is probably one of the hardest things for me to actually have I think of a million things that I don't have rather than what I do. You know, I wake up with a list of things I got to do rather than what I have. But I will say my prayers are very simple. They're thank you. And what's your will for me and give me the power to carry it out. Prayers that simple work. <laughs> I don't need anything. And also the whole give me the power to put it in front, you know, uh, give me your will for me today and give me the power to carry that out. It's, it's step 11. It's very simple. It's a very simple prayer, and that means that the day can be magical because I have no idea what it's going to be. 
but I'm going to be in line with whatever this will is, and I'm going to have the power to carry it out. I'll be able to meet whatever challenge comes to me today. And that is reassuring because this world is crazy, you know, not quite as crazy as me, but this world is crazy. And um, I never know how to wrap things up. Where am I on time? Okay, that's probably good. We might, y'all might be able to get extra puff off your cigarette or your vape, whatever you have. Um, I believe that if there's nothing else, that I will bid you adieu. Thank you. Hello, I'm Taylor C., and I'm a drug addict. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe or follow, and look out for more episodes coming soon.